The fellow that wrote the book of James, his name was James, and he was the half-brother of Jesus. Half-brother, I say, because his father and mother were Joseph and Mary, and Jesus' mother was Mary, but not his, fa- his father was our Heavenly Father. He was also known as James Camelnees. He prayed so much that they say that his knees looked like the knees of a camel. If you've ever seen a camel's knees, they have calluses on them. And he was one of the main leaders of the early church, and the book of James is one of the first books of the New Testament that was written. It's one of the favored books among the developing countries of the world because although it is theologically profound, it is extremely, extremely practical. You want to get convicted? Read the book of James. You want to get your toes stepped on spiritually? Read the book of James. You want to know what to do practically in life? Read the book of James. And that's what we're doing. We're studying verse by verse through the entire book of James, and we've landed on James chapter 2. Now, if you haven't been with us uh, since we started three weeks ago, let me just refresh your memory. We started James chapter 1 by talking about trials as opportunities for growth in James 1 through 12. We learned that every trial that God sends our way is an opportunity to develop our character. And that if we embrace the trial with joy and perseverance, that God matures us through any trial. In the middle of trials, we also be tempted. And that's what James talks about in verse 13 through 18 of chapter 1. And he talks about how temptations can be handled, where temptations come from. Most people blame their temptations on the devil or other people. In reality, our temptations come from inside of us. And he talks about how it is the grace of God and the goodness of God that helps us overcome temptation. Last week, we talked about receiving the word and how oftentimes we get angry and we're slow to hear and we're quick to speak and quick to be angry. And so the word of God can't penetrate. And James talks about how we have to clean our lives, not let our lives get cluttered with anger so that the word of God can get through to us. And he switches directions, chapters, in chapter 2, and he really talks to us about another huge, huge topic. And it's the topic of treating people right or the topic of discrimination, partiality, bigotry, and prejudice. Okay, you ready, folks? All right. James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers... As believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. I like how he starts. My brothers, my brethren, brothers and sisters, part of the same family. As believers, if you've embraced the fact that Jesus is Lord, he uses the word Lord Jesus in Christ. Lord means that he's master of all, over all things, high above all things. Jesus, Yeshua, was the name that he was, uh, Jesus was most commonly uh, referred to as. Christ has the implication of Messiah. So the Lord that came in a human form, but the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, if you really believe 
in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, then there should be no favoritism among you. What he's saying, if you really are Christians, if you're authentic believers, then there is no place for discrimination, prejudice, bigotry in the people of God. And he goes on to tell them a story. Verse 2. He says, suppose a man comes to your meetings. Uh, It could be a synagogue. In those days, they were still gathering in the synagogues, the assembly. Suppose a man comes to your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. In the Jewish time, in the time when this book was written, people used to wear their social status in their clothing. If you were rich, you wore big gold rings and fine clothes, and people could tell, hey, they got some money. Nowadays, I think the rich have dressed down and the poor have dressed up, and so you can't really tell, right? I mean, have you ever seen the way Bill Gates dresses, the, one of the wealthiest men in North America? I mean, if you didn't recognize his face, you'd see him, and hey, he doesn't dress, he doesn't have gold chains hanging all over. We see someone with too many gold chains hanging. We think they're from a certain neighborhood in Chicago, right? Uh, you know. <laughs> but in those days, if you were wealthy, you dressed up. You wore your wealth. In fact, there were places that actually would rent a gold ring for the day. And so you could go in and rent a gold ring if you were going to a wedding and try to show people, hey, I got some money. I got some wealth. And then you would return it the next day. Uh, There's places like that today, right? Uh, You can rent a tuxedo and take it back, or you can even rent jewelry, from what I understand, and wear it and then take it back, or you can rent a car to impress people as you go. And uh, it's all about the appearance. And so he says, if someone walks into your assembly and you notice that this person looks like, hey, they got some cash, and then right behind that person, there's a poor man in shabby clothes that also comes in. Maybe they're a homeless person or someone that's a day worker and you notice their clothes are shabby and you notice that they're poor and they walk into the same doors of the sanctuary. The ushers greet them, people say hi to them, but you notice that the wealthy person suddenly gets a little bit more favorable treatment. And suddenly they say, oh, come, come here. Hey, we got a nice seat for you right here. We don't want the pillars to, 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 to block your view. And, and, and you're going to hear real nice, okay, here, here, sit down right here. This is a great place for you. And the homeless person walks in, and you kind of say, hey, dude. And, and he walks in, and you say, you know, we got a seat right back in the back for you. And I'm not sure we have a lot. we got, we got a place way in the back for you, and I'm not sure we can. And, or you make him sit at your feet, he says, or you put him in the back. You judge him by how he's dressed. You judge his status. This is what it says. You say, here's a good seat for you. But to the poor, you say, stand there, sit at my feet on the floor. If that is your response, James says, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? What James is saying is the moment that you judge a book by the cover and you stereotype and you add value to one person and take value away from another person, you have just ascended the ladder and sat on the chair of a judge. 
and you have made yourself into a judge that you have no business being. Now, why? And by the way, this is about financial discrimination, but there's a lot of forms of discrimination in our society today. You really have to fight hard at not being prejudiced and discriminating uh, based on how someone looks. Uh, There is racial discrimination where people are judged by the color of their skin and we stereotype people, oh, they're this color, so they're all that, or that color, so they're all that. There's ethnic discrimination by whatever ethnic background they come from. There is age discrimination. Sometimes elderly people are discriminated against. Sometimes young people are discriminated against. There is, uh, there's even a study that was done not too long ago in which they uh, had some women that went in for interviews to get hired at jobs. And they discovered that some of the women that were heavier were discriminated against because of their weight as opposed to the women that weren't as heavy. It's, 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 it's body type discrimination. And what James is saying is he saying the moment that you look at a person and judge them by their cover and discriminate and you put higher value on someone and lesser value on someone else, then you've set yourself up as a judge and only God should be the judge. You have discriminated against them with evil thoughts and if you're a believer, there should be none of that in your life. Why? Well, look at what Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 17 says. It says in the Old Testament, for the Lord your God is the God of gods. I like that. And he's the Lord of lords, and I like that. He's the great God and the mighty, in a word that's popular among the young people, and awesome. And then after it describes who God is and how mighty it is, he is, he says, who shows no partiality and accepts No bribes. He doesn't show partiality. He's not bigoted, and he accepts no bribes. He would not make a good Chicago politician, right? (laughs) Listen, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widows. God has a heart for the fatherless and the widows. In other words, the helpless, the people that have less. And listen, and he loves the alien. You said the alien? I didn't know the Bible talked about aliens. Well, we're not talking about Martians. We're not talking about extraterrestrial beings. We're talking about aliens as in immigrants. Someone from another country that comes here that's not from here, that doesn't speak the language, that, that, that is from a different society, a different culture. In the Bible, they're called aliens. He defends the cause of the father, and he loves the immigrant, giving him food and clothing, and listen, and you are to love the immigrant, those who are immigrants, for you yourselves were immigrants in Egypt. What what he's saying is that, and by the way, 2,000 years ago, the Jewish people had a very high sense of discrimination. If you were not Jew and you were a Gentile 
and you were pretty much looked down upon and, and ostracized. But what he's telling these folks, what God was telling these people, he was saying, hey, you need to have a heart for the immigrant, the person that's not from your country, because, because you also, because first of all, God has a heart for them, and secondly, because you also were immigrants one time in Egypt. Do you remember when the people of God spent 400 years in northern Africa, in Egypt, and they were slaves to the Egyptians, and they were the minority in a majority country, and they were beaten, and they were, they were ostracized, and they were treated like dirt because they were different, and God had to send Moses, the liberator, to free them from 400 years of slavery, but he's reminding him, remember, you at one time also were an immigrant in a foreign country. Do you realize also that Jesus was an immigrant? Oh, you may not have thought of Jesus as an immigrant. But he was born in Bethlehem. And that was where he was from. But at about two years old, he had to flee the country because of persecution. And he left the country and went to northern Africa, which is Egypt now. And he lived there in northern Africa in a place where he was a minority and his family were immigrants, where they did not speak the language, where the color of their skin was different, where the culture was different, where he was a minority in a culture that looked down upon those that were immigrating. Jesus was an immigrant family. He knows the plight of the immigrant. Never thought of Jesus that way, did you? And before he migrated back to Israel. And I want you to know that in part, I mean, we are experiencing right now in this nation, there's volcanic sentiments over immigration law and the undocumented and border patrol. And I want to say this, listen, New Life, we have never taken a political stand on any issue. We are not Republicans or Democrats or independent. You'll never hear me preach a political party because we're not political. We are a church. Yeah, we're a church. I don't endorse a political party, and I don't believe that there's one party that's the God party and the other party that's the bad party. I, I don't believe that, and I won't endorse a party. I'm never going to tell you to vote for a party or not a party because we are the church, and we are about the kingdom of God and the things of God, and we have both Republican and Democrat in this congregation, we have independents in this congregation, and... Um, I, I believe that we need, but, but what I will teach you to do is I believe that you need to think about the issues, regardless of what the issues are, you need to think about the issues from a biblical way of thinking. You need to ask yourself, what is at the heart of God? How does God view these things? And many issues that we vote on are moral issues, not political issues, and therefore we need to ask ourselves, what does the Bible have to say about this? And regardless of where you fall on the issue of border patrol or not border patrol and documents and so forth, here's what I understand, that God says that all human beings are made in his image and that every human being needs to be treated with respect and with dignity and with value. And he especially has a heart for the immigrant because, listen to me, every person here at one time or another, your forefathers were also immigrants here. 
Everyone. And every majority also always has a tendency to look at the new people coming in with suspicion. When the majority is there, they tend to look at the new immigrants as they're taking our jobs, they're less educated, they're poor, and they tend to have laws against them. But listen, everyone, I don't care if you're Polish, English, German, Italian, Irish, Mexican, Puerto Rican, your forefathers at one time or another, you may be first generation, but your forefathers at one time or another, we were all immigrants to this country. This country's made of immigrants. The only people that were not immigrants were the Native Americans. And there'll be other immigrant groups that come. And I know that, that God says, love the immigrants, the aliens. Treat them with respect and dignity. So whatever our policies are, there needs to be a sense of compassion, mercy, and dignity shown to the people that are first generation in this country. Amen? Amen. Acts 10, chapter, Acts 10, verse 34, Peter says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You see, the reason that bigotry and racism and discrimination cannot be part of the people of God is that in the heart of God, Jesus came to bring reconciliation. When Jesus came, he came to bring two types of reconciliation. First of all, he came to reconcile man to God. In fact, the Bible calls us as Christians ambassadors of reconciliation. Reconciliation means to bring two parties that are at odds and bring them together. We are ambassadors of reconciliation in part because we help bring people to God. When Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary, on that crucifixion day, it tells us that as soon as Jesus died, there was thunder and it turned dark and something happened in the temple. The temple curtain that separated the holy, the holy of holies from the just interior part of the temple, the temple curtain was split in two from the top on down, signifying that from that day on, everybody had access to God the Father through the sacrifice of Jesus. And that's why since Jesus died on the cross, you and I can come boldly into the presence of God the Father because Jesus Christ has brought reconciliation between us and God. But he also brings reconciliation between the Jew and the Gentile, the slave and the free, man and woman. He brings reconciliation between us so that in Jesus Christ, it says, now, there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, man or woman. We are all one in Jesus Christ. That is the heart of God. We may have different functions, but we are equal in value be before God the Father. Amen? Amen? This is what, in the days that Jesus was speaking, the message of Jesus was revolutionary. And it was one of the only places in 2,000 years ago where slaves and free met together, where men and women worshiped beside one another. Jesus came with this revolutionary teaching, 
telling people that there is no caste system in the kingdom of God, that there are no people that are more valuable or less valuable, that we all have dignity. In fact, the founders of our nation understood it's, it's built in the Declaration, in the Constitution, it's built into our founding documents that we all, because of God, we have, all have inalienable rights based on the fact that we're created in the image of God. And therefore, as human beings, we are equal before God. Our functions may be different, but we have equal value before God. And James is arguing that point, that the moment that we set ourselves up as, as judges, that we are showing discrimination with evil thoughts. Secondly, James argues, verse 5, he says, listen. It's almost like in Chicago we'd say, listen up. Anytime you say something that shocks people and they start making an argument in their head, you have to say, hey, stop making that argument. Listen up. I say it sometimes. I say, are you tracking with me? Hey, can I have your attention? Look up at me. Listen, because I want to make sure that you catch the point I'm about to make. James says, listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? And to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who loved him. But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? The second point that James makes is this. Remember that the lesser in this world are often chosen by God to be the greater people in his kingdom. Now, what James is saying is that some of you are discriminating against the poor, whereas you don't understand that some of those people that you're discriminating against are the very people that God has chosen to accomplish his work and to make the kingdom go forward. Now, let me clarify from the beginning. Money is not good or bad. Money's neutral. I often hear people misquote the Bible. And they say, well, doesn't the Bible say that money is the root of all evil? How many of you have heard that? That is not what the Bible says. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil, not money itself. Money is neutral. It's not good. It's not bad. It's neutral. It's a force that can be used for good. It's a force that can be used for bad. You're no more spiritual because you have money. You're no less spiritual because you don't have money. Money's a neutral thing. However, let me say this. The Bible does say that oftentimes our challenge is that people discriminate against the poor and favor the rich. And James is saying, don't you understand James is saying, listen, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of this world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom? Do you realize that sometimes it's easier for the poor, the people that have less, to come to God than it is for the rich to come to God? Do you realize that? You know why? Let me tell you why. When you're rich and you have more money, 
it's easy to begin to depend on your money. If you have problems and you're poor, you cry out to God and say, God, I need help, and you talk to a friend. If you're rich, you hire a therapist and ask them to talk you through the problems. If you have health problems and you're poor, you just pray for healing and say, God, help me, because I really, if you're rich, you hire a trainer and a fitness consultant, and you go to a high-paid doctor to solve your problems because you have money to do so. If you're poor and you're having financial problems, you say, oh, Jehovah Jireh, help me out. I need a breakthrough in my finances. If you're wealthy and you have financial issues, you talk to your, your, your accountant and you go to your bank to solve your problems because most people that are wealthy look to their wealth to solve their problems. Now, you can be very, very wealthy and very spiritual. Not all rich people do that. But it's a tendency, the more we accumulate, to begin to depend on our wealth and to be look, look to our wealth as our security instead of looking to God as our security. That's why it tells us in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many are wise according to the flesh, not many are mighty, not many are noble, for God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the mighty, and the things that are not to bring to naught those things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. Listen to what God is saying. God has chosen sometimes the, the, the weak, the poor. God has chosen those that have little oftentimes to accomplish and to do the work of the kingdom. Why? So that they won't brag about the fact that they did it in their very own power. Listen, if you're really smart and you do something and it works out, you say, hey, it was all because of my brains. If you're wealthy and you accomplish something, you say, hey, it was all because of my money. If you're powerful and you accomplish something, you say, it's all because of my power and my influence. But if you don't have money and you don't have power and you don't have wealth and God accomplishes something extraordinary and miraculous through you, everybody knows it wasn't them. There must be a God that did it through them. And God gets all the honor and God gets all the glory and God gets all the power because you know, hey, it's God. That's why Paul said, when I am weak, then I am strong. I glory in my weakness so that the strength of God can be manifest in my weakness. Listen, James is saying, how is it that you look at the poor and discriminate against them, and because sometimes God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised for those that love him. But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? I see this happen in this nation all the time. I, I see a backlash of anger oftentimes, even in this nation, against the poor and the immigrant. And, and I see this 
upsurge of anger saying it's the immigrant and the poor and they're taking our jobs and so forth. Listen, do you know why we're in this financial crisis and recession that we're in? It's not because of the immigrant, it's not because of the poor, it's because of the wealthy and their greed that took this country into a recession and brought us to our knees because of their greed. It's the Enrons of this world. It's the corruption of the mortgage lenders that overextended themselves and took advantage sometimes of the uneducated and the poor to offer them that which they could not afford. And we've gotten into this major financial crisis. It's the top 1-2% of this nation who are millionaires or billionaires who overextended themselves. It's the Freddie Macs and the Fannie Mays that have brought this country to our knees. And yet there's a backlash of anger against the poor, against the immigrant, against those who never brought us into this situation in the first place. And James is saying, hey, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? Now, there's a word of balance here. There are wealthy executives and industrialists who are fair, who bring economy to this country, who bring great jobs to this nation, who treat employees with respect, who give them good benefits, and we applaud them. Uh, They're the ones that care about the masses and and do a great job. And we we have had people even even here that have helped out this church at times. And and I don't have a lot of friends that are millionaires, but I have a few. And um, I remember when we were raising money for this building, we needed to raise a million dollars, and we sweated and worked, and I took on a part-time job just to meet my commitment to be able to help with the donation to this building, and other people did, and sold cars, and and, uh, scrapped vacations, and and, uh, just did a lot of sacrifice in order to get this, but in in the end, we were still $150,000 short of our million-dollar goal, And I'll never forget, it was a man that we met, a wealthy man who did not attend this church, who lived in another state, who heard about us, told us, I told him our story, and we got a $150,000 check in the mail from a wealthy person that believed in what we were doing. But remember that oftentimes it's a lesser in this world, and if you look at where the gospel is, is progressing now, If you look at where people are coming to Christ by the masses and Christianity is growing, don't look at Western Europe like Spain or Italy or France or Germany. Uh, Don't look at Switzerland. Uh, Don't look at North America or Canada. If you really want to see where the gospel of Jesus Christ is growing, look at Africa. Look at China. Look at South America and Central America where the church is exploding in growth. You know why? I believe that one of the reasons why is that 
the people in that nation are in developing countries and they're poorer and they're needier. And so in their poverty and in their need, they look to God of the heavens to say, God, you are the one. We're open. We're humble. We cry out to you. And it's in those nations that the gospel is exploding. It's in nations like this. Listen, we live in North America, and don't deceive yourselves if New Life is the only church that you've been to in the last few years. Most churches in North America are not growing. Most churches in North America are stagnant or declining. We are a bit of an exception to the rule. We're not living in revival in this nation, but we thank God that there's pockets of revival happening, and part of it is because of the materialism that exists. And that's our call to be generous people and James' exhortation not to show bigotry against those that are hurting and those that are poor as well. Number three, if you're taking notes. Verse eight says, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, I love how he addresses it as the royal law. There's, a lo- there's hundreds of laws and regulations in the Old Testament, but the royal law, the big law that summarizes it all is simply this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the royal law. That's the law that trumps all the laws. That's the law that all the other laws fall under. And James says, listen, If you keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin. Sometimes we don't look at bigotry or discrimination or favoritism as sin. We just look at it as, "Eh, it's, you know, we live in Chicago. But, but, These people were arguing that there were sins that were much worse. And they go on to say, well, hey, the Bible says don't murder and don't commit adultery. Favoritism's us. It's not that good, but it's not that bad. I mean, it's not that serious. And what James says, if you violate this law, if you sin with favoritism, you're in the same category as a lawbreaker, as someone that commits adultery, or someone that murders because it also is a sin. And listen, it's so ingrained in our culture that even in Chicago, we have become somewhat immune to bigotry, racism, and discrimination. There are are neighborhoods on the southwest side of Chicago that you cross this side of the viaduct and it's all black African American. You cross over to that side and it's all white. And the two shall not mix. Uh, You go to some neighborhoods and it's all Asian, and then on the other side of the expressway, it's all African-American. Chinatown and the expressway, you go over there. You go to some neighborhoods and you feel this, it's, it's all uh, Puerto Rican, and, and over here it's, it's, it's Greek. And you, you have these dividing lines that are there, uh, that exist. Martin Luther, the civil rights reformer, came to Chicago and did a demonstration, a march in Marquette Park, and he said, I've never seen this extreme racism and bigotry even in the deepest south. So strong was it. And we've grown up with it. We've grown up around it. 
we, we've, we've, uh, we've drank the milk of racism. We've experienced it in our lives so that it's so deeply ingrained within us that oftentimes it just flows out of us. We stereotype people and look at people a certain way, a certain color. We put them all in that category. And what James is saying is that, my friends, is sin. Sin. I thank God, and I pray that New Life Community Church, we would be multicultural, multi-ethnic, mixed, from every side of the track, from every nationality, every color, and that when we come together, there's a blending, and when you look at people, you don't see a black person, or you don't see a Mexican you see a brother, you see a sister. Hey, you see the family of God. And you view people that way, and you walk that way and live that way, and view people in not in a colorless society because, because we celebrate people's diversity and ethnicity. But we, we view people in a way that we embrace who they are and where they come from, and we know that they are children, sons and daughters made in the image of God Almighty and that racism and bigotry has no place among us as we worship God together. Amen? Amen. And that's what James declares. And he says, do, do not for who said do not commit adultery? All said do not murder. If you commit adultery but do not commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. It, it spoils your soul, it damages your spirit, it takes a hold of you if you do not see this. And I pray to God that no matter what culture, what background, I believe that God has called us to reach people of every color, every race, every social economic background. I believe that God has called us to do that. And I believe that as a church, no matter how long you have been a Christian, I hope that when people walk in these doors, even if you see they're like straight from the streets, and they don't know the lingo, and they don't have a Bible, and they don't know how to talk and act Christian, but I pray to God that we're so full of the Spirit of God that when people walk in that we treat them equally, and we embrace them, and we love them. And the young gangbanger that walks in, we love him, embrace him, take off his hat so it's not crooked to one side or the other, or his gang colors, and we say, have a seat, young man. We're so happy you're here. Not that we stand, yeah, absolutely. Because I believe that Jesus was, Jesus was called to all kinds of people. There were business people that he reached, but there were also, he was called the friend of sinners. And one of the accusations of against Jesus is he hung out with sinners and party animals and prostitutes. And they said, how could you be a holy person hanging out? And Jesus said, I have come to seek and to save those who were lost. 
And so our, my goal is that every Sunday, every single Sunday, I pray that we don't become a club of all the converted Christians that have been Christians for a long time. I pray that, we're so out of, that we are so full of the love of Jesus, that we are so full of grace, that every single Sunday we have people here that are atheists, that are partiers, that, that are coming out of drugs and coming out of gangs and coming out of different backgrounds, but they come because they sense the love of God, that they're hungry for God, that they say... I may not be there yet, but I know those people are real, and I want some of what they have, and that's my prayer, and so if you're here today, and this is your first time in church, or you've never been around, or you're wondering whether you should be here because you're not really fully convinced or not fully devoted yet, I'm glad you're here, and I want you to be here, and I want you to come, and I want you to explore Now, I am super biased towards Jesus, so I'm going to push you to Jesus. I'm going to try to talk you into Jesus, and I'm going to try to encourage you to really consider him because I believe it's the best thing that can ever happen to your life, but I'm glad that you're here. And lastly, James closes with this. Listen, verse 12, speak and act as as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Lastly, listen, let a mercy heart rule in every relation because ultimately it will affect the way you are judged. Do you realize that Jesus said, judge not, for with, ju- with, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. What does that mean? Listen, it means that if you're harsh and judgmental and show very little mercy or grace, that that's the way you also will be judged by God. That's what it says. One day... I can guarantee you that every soul here is going to stand before a judge who is God, the perfect being. We'll all give account to God. Not one of us will not give account to God. The Bible says it's appointed unto every man once to die and after that the judgment. None of us escape the judgment. As someone said, there's two things for sure in life, taxes and death. You know, all of us are going to be judged. We will stand before God and give account for our life. Now, if you have judged harshly, if you have shown little mercy, what it says here is you also will be shown little mercy. Listen, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, by the word of God, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. You may be tempted to see someone that's poor. And you look at that someone that's poor and you think to yourself, they're probably lazy and a drunk. And you're trying to milk the system. Get a job, you bum. And if they come for a handout, hey, I work hard for my money. Why should I help you out? 
and you assume they're lazy, they're alcoholic, they're a drunk, they could get out of their situation if they wanted to, they just want to be there, they want to live off of other people, and our judgment is harsh and condemning towards them. And listen, some people are that way. It's true. Some people are lazy. Some people are alcoholics. Some people are drug addicts. Some people have opportunity to work and don't want to work. And by the way, the Word of God says stuff about them. It says, hey, if someone doesn't work, then they shouldn't eat either. That's what it says. You don't want to work? Don't eat. See how long you last. (laughs) But we don't always know people's story. And so instead of judging people up front, let's show mercy and let's show compassion And I would rather fall on the side of mercy and compassion than on the side of judgment and harassment and harshness in people's lives. Because I need grace in my life. I need all the grace I can get, and I want all the grace from God I can get. So therefore, I want to give all the grace that I can to other people around me. And James says, whoever shows mercy will we'll, we'll experience mercy because mercy triumphs over judgment. May God give us a soft heart so that we're not critical and judgmental. Hey, when someone sins, we rebuke them and challenge them, get right with God, but we do it in a loving way. When someone struggles, we don't kick them when they're down. We offer a hand and say, can I help you up? When someone does something, we don't say, I could never do that. How could you do that? Why do you struggle like that? No, 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 no. We help them out of their struggle. Only pride is self-righteous. Only pride is harsh. Mercy and judgment show empathy and compassion and love to those people that are struggling. That's the heart that God has for this church. That's the heart that God has for us. That's the heart that God wants you to have towards other people that are struggling as well. Amen? Amen.